Take a network break. Join us for our weekly analysis of tech news and grab yourself a virtual donut. This week, we've got multiple companies going private, some dangerous new security vulnerabilities, and more IT news. We're sponsored in part by Nokia and its Edge Network Controller. This is a Kubernetes-based application that lets you automate your IP network in Edge locations. And if you want to learn more about Edge Network Controller, you can listen to the April 11th Tech Byte that we recorded with Nokia and go to nokia.ly slash edge-networkcontroller. And stay tuned. After the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba. They're a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company. We're going to be talking about Wi-Fi 6E and why demand is so strong for APs with Wi-Fi 6E support. Uh, last but not least, if you like Network Break, check out Heavy, Heavy Strategy with Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnson from Emeritus Research. It's at packapusher.net. And Greg, you guys recently did an episode on uh, technical debt. A technical debt, yeah. Jonah and I started off arguing that technical debt, you know, different aspects of technical debt and talking about what the questions were and what we actually ended up agreeing is that operational debt is the underlying, the biggest issue. Technology debt about what you bought is not so much of a problem as the, the debt that you have when you're doing operationally, like how hard is it to keep it going? How hard is it to keep the operations team doing their jobs and that sort of stuff. So it was an interesting discussion. And of course, any discussion of operational debt tends to lead into dunking on digital transformation, which is good. <laughs> so <laughs> one of our favorite topics here, are you digitally transformed today, Drew? Absolutely. hundred percent. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Is that that extra shiny? You've been transformed so hard. You're all shiny around the edges. I, yes, but <laughs> I, I, digital transformation 2.0 is coming. So I will be out of compliance shortly. Yeah. So heavy strategy, find it separately. It's not part of our full feeds or fat pipes. Uh, those RSS feeds, if you are going to listen to it, we didn't want to put it in there because people were saying there was too much content. So Heavy Strategy lives on its own feed. Just search for Heavy Strategy in your podcatcher and you'll be able to subscribe and download it and tell us what you think over at packetpushes.net slash FU where you can send in your follow-up. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into the news. And before we do, Greg, you just wanted to make a comment about uh, the, the news oh. that was offered up to us this week. By oh, this week is all gossip column. I feel like I'm a gossip columnist in IT infrastructure, to be fair. Have you noticed? It's all so-and-so was bought by so-and-so and so-and-so -so sold out and this product was sold from so-and-so to so-and-so. So this week is a bit like a, a dating service, you know. Uh, this person's dating whom, but then they split up and started dating him. So just get ready for that. There's not a whole lot of technology news. It's a lot of business news this week. So be warned. All right. Yes, that, that's your opportunity. All right. Yeah, we'll kick it off with security company Barracuda Networks. They may be best known for their airport advertising signs. They're being acquired by private equity firm KKR for an undisclosed amount. Yeah, they're being handed over from one private equity firm to another, which is not something you hear all that often. <laughs> I noticed that. Uh, that was yeah, KKR is a private equity firm and they're buying it from Toma Bravo, who we know quite well. They've been buying up businesses all over the place. So presumably there's something here. Toma Bravo, though, tends to focus on the high end of enterprise IT. So my general presumption was that they were going to buy Barracuda and then upscale it into the market, like upscale to a high end product. Mm -hmm. And they must have decided that that's not going to work. Um, and so now they've sold it to KKR. KKR has some other acquisitions in this space. Uh, Ping, Silence, Darktrace, ForgeRock, NetSPI, Optive, and others. And I would say the general consensus here is that KKR is building a portfolio around the mid to small market. Right. And so buying Barracuda away from Toma Bravo does make sense, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, my perception of Barracuda is that they were always focused on small and medium companies, small and medium enterprises with a focus mm. on let's do security and make it as easy as possible. They were primarily an appliance company in the early days. I, I presume they've made the transition to also doing virtual instances for cloud and so on, but I haven't kept an eye mm. on them. Yeah, 
I don't know if they've been all that successful about moving small businesses to the clouds. It's a long tail down there. People who are pretty set in their ways and, you know, you sell a firewall and a product and you sell it. And a lot of small businesses don't like subscription services. Big businesses like subscriptions, I think, is my sense. Could be wrong. but Or at least they're being uh, forced into subscriptions, whether they like it. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. I think at this point, though, the security technology, the whole security IT market is just uh, flooded with private equity. We've seen so many acquisitions by PE companies, and I think we'll probably even talk about some more down the, sh down the order here. But mm -hmm. I think there's an expectation that security will get generate big revenues or big um, opportunities. And my general sense here is that the trend follows this line of convergence. There's too many security tools out there. There's antivirus, there's threat scanning, there's and malware analysis. You know, there's all these different businesses coming together. Do you do it on-prem? Do you do it at the edge? Do you do it in the SD-WAN? Do you do it in the cloud, like Cloudflare? You know, all those types of things. Right. And it's just too confusing. You know, I've heard stories of customers having 75 different security products. And I think the trend here is to converge. So what PE might be doing is buying these products and then trying to weld them into a platform, a platform that covers an increase. So instead of customers having to have 20 or 30 tools, they get welded into one platform that you buy from one person and take it from there. That's what I'm looking for. Because if private equity can buy and then merge these products into a larger platform strategy, then they could unlock a large price valuation to sell it to somebody like Cisco, who so far hasn't been able to converge its security products into a unified platform. They're still very much, you know, siloed. Each one is this and 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 they do their own thing. HPE doesn't have a security strategy. Dell also doesn't have a security platform. So maybe they see an opportunity there to either build a platform that stands in its own right against the Palo Altos, against the Fortinets, who have huge valuations. Those companies are like 10, 20, $50 billion companies now. Right. So they see room for a platform company to come along and sit you know, to enter that market, but also there's a potential exit into the traditional players who haven't dabbled in security or haven't been able to uh, innovate into building their own security strategy. Yeah, for Barracuda's part, I you know I, I never see going to private equity as necessarily a, a healthy thing, a good thing, um, because mm -hmm. I, my impression of private equity is that they're there to either you know shine it up and spin it out somewhere else or just extract mm -hmm. cash from it. Uh, but I think as a company, Barracuda did make an initial splash selling. Uh, anti-spam email security products, but as folks move to more cloud-delivered email, Gmail or or uh, Exchange Online, whatever, mm -hmm. those kinds of services get folded in, which makes it harder to sell an actual security appliance for that, which may be why Barracuda's been living in PE for all this time. Yeah, I always had the impression that Barracuda's was kind of doing, has kind of been outclassed by the security threats. So the sort of security threats we had 10 years ago, Barracuda, you put an appliance, do some basic competency and you've done enough, you know, a bit right. like the old put a firewall in and that's okay. Right. But now we're talking about these fluid edges or a hybrid, you know, remote work, distributed work. Uh, it's all about moving stuff into agents. Do they have the capability to handle, you know, a 20 person company and do a remote access right. VPN type strategy that does digital experience monitoring and, you know, so on and so on and so on. Yes, that's right. Um, I was curious because I was thinking about Barracuda, which also made me think about competitors like WatchGuard and SonicWall. So I went and did a little digging. They are also Sonic, SonicWall and WatchGuard in the hands of private equity. Uh, so mm -hmm. that whole, it seems like that, you know, sort of those legacy vendors in the SME space are off the public market. Yeah, it's this convergence play. And like I said, I think there's these really successful companies at the top of the stack, like Fortinet, Palo Alto, and so forth. There's others. Cisco, uh, Cisco to a lesser extent. Cisco's not not popular for security. It's got one, 
And a lot of companies have it because they want to buy from just a limited number of suppliers. But um, but there's a whole market underneath that. Yep. Waiting for a mid-sized player to enter that market. And my instinct is to say that's possibly what they're looking for. I don't know. You make your own decisions. Links are in the show notes. All right, moving on. Uh, Intel's acquiring private 5G provider Ananki, as well as much of the internal development team of the Open Networking Foundation, or ONF. Uh, Ananki was spun out of the Open Networking Foundation to commercialize open source projects within ONF. This is really unusual in lots of ways, because a lot of people, a lot of the articles that talked about this were talking about the ONF was acquired. But the Open Networking Foundation was something of an incubator. The idea was that it would sort of pick up graduates coming out of Stanford, from what I could see. uh, pay them up with some with a project that they could do some code development on. And over the years, they've developed a number of different products, which sort of haven't got a whole lot of traction. But Ananki, which is a 5G, private 5G platform, received 30 million US dollars from the US government to create a secure 5G project. You think about that. You could imagine that the military might want to run a private 5G system in theater, mm-hmm. but they'd need a secure system to do that. So perhaps this is what they were looking at them getting down. Uh, so Intel has actually acquired a Nunky. A Nunky is actually staffed by all the people who were part of the ONF. So with them going to Intel, now the ONF is effectively acquired because the people who are in the Open Networking Foundation have now disappeared into jobs. Presumably they've got nice little a nice little buyout package from Intel. Yeah, so Intel's not owning ONF. ONF is going to continue to be a standalone organization, but uh, they did just suffer, I think, a significant uh, staffing loss. Hard to see it continuing. It's not a big uh, organization. Um, and the key people, Parugaraka and a few others are all heading over, uh, you know, were in Ananki in the private board. To me, it's it's an interesting, what ONF was doing is it did just look like a way to pick up students from Stanford in the hope that they could buy a product and then spin it into the market. So it's it's a... One of those unique Silicon Valley things. If you can get a, if you can go through university at Stanford, you'll probably be in a startup, or <laughs> in a founder startup, and there's lots of ways to help you. That's how I sort of saw the ONF. Hopefully, I'm right. Um, it is interesting though to see that uh, Intel is still acquiring headcount in networking. We've talked yep. about this before. Mm-hmm. They've acquired a whole bunch of people from Big Switch, people from Nasira, from various um, open source projects. They've recruited them, um, and if And it looks like they're going to continue to acquire more people. So I would expect a year or two, maybe, you know, at a guess. And we'll start to see a really coherent networking strategy come out from Intel to compete with Broadcom and NVIDIA and Marvell. I suspect we'll see a lot in this space, especially around the DPU. Yeah, a couple of interesting things. So we've recently talked about Cisco, Amazon, and HPE all announcing their own private 5G offerings in the past six months or so. I'm curious if Intel is planning to sell 5G directly or more use Ananki as a platform to sell to service providers, MSPs, and other vendors that will then go and sell to a customer. Uh, I guess my speculation would be resting on the idea that we've seen lots of people make private 5G. So, for example, Azure has a 5G. They acquired Meta, uh, some company called Meta something, um, a while back. Um, that had a 5G platform. And so now they have a cloud-hosted 5G. AWS has a private 5G-hosted service. Nokia has one. No, you know, Cisco's got one. Right. So there's different ways of coming to market here. Do you sell direct to customer or do you find a, a set of services that you then sell to somebody else who then bundles them up inside of a 5G platform? Right. So it's a little hard to say because five a private 5G consists of dozens of components, you know, OSS, BSS, billing integration, you know, radio spectrum 
the two key components are the software defined RAN and then the software defined core, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that it's hard to say for sure. So we'll keep an eye on that as we move on. Um, <laughs> Uh, moving back to private equity, uh, the private equity firm Toma Bravo is buying SailPoint for $6.9 billion in cash. SailPoint makes products for identity and password management and secure access. Yeah, identity management, again, I think we've talked about this a lot in the last six months, Drew. At least that's my sense of it, um, where we talked a lot about NAC in the old days, and then we talked about NAC linking up with micro-segmentation. This goes a whole step further, and they call it identity governance and administration where it's not just about um, having two-factor authentication, it's also about who's got it, who's logged in, where are they logging in from, what are they logging in with, how do I control these things en masse, how do I, you know, scaling this up to a fully operational solution. So it's not just authentication, it's the whole governance and administrations and operations platform around this. Yeah, so identity is definitely an essential component for secure access, both for remote and on-prem workers. And I think we are seeing a renewed identity to incorporate identity uh, along with other attributes like device posture, device location, so that you can do more fine-grained access enforcement. Yeah, it's really like interesting to think that networking will be driven by this identity stuff in the near future because you won't be able to get access to the network if you don't pass through these identity solutions. So they do sit right at the very top of the stack. Right. And I guess that's why 6.9 billion for this makes sense. Uh, because it is actually, you know, who's connecting to my network and what privileges do I allow them to have? That's not the old days of radius. You know, you really need something much more sophisticated now. You need to be able to march people off the premises and to make sure that they don't get anything, click this button. Or, you know, if one of your remote users is only ever logs in from a suburb of you know, London, and then all of a sudden they log in from, you know, somewhere in Brazil, you might want to say, hmm, I need right. to stop that from happening, right? <laughs> now that happens in banking software, that happens in, you know, that sort of stuff, but that's what we're talking about here. So is that worth 6.9 billion just for this one company? And there's dozens of others in this space, perhaps? Toma Bravo thinks so, but yeah, $7 billion is a lot of money. Yep, for sure. All right, moving on, uh, software maker Perforce, they're acquiring Puppet for an undisclosed amount. Perforce plays in the DevOps space. Uh, Puppet is in the configuration management space. Uh, Puppet first came out in 2005. And sticking with our theme, uh, Perforce is also privately held uh, by the investment firms Francisco Partners and Clear Lake. Uh, so Puppet, of course, was very popular. When we first started talking about DevOps, it was always going to be Puppet and Chef. Do you remember those days? I do remember those days, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think really hard and I had to wait for my brain to sort of, you know, restore from tape and remember that the early days it was all about Puppet and Chef and then SaltStack came along and then Ansible came along. And over time, it seems Puppet and Chef faded away. Chef, I think, was sold to somebody for and folded into another product. Ansible was acquired by Red Hat. You could speculate why Puppet faded away. Uh, I've heard different people talk about it. Uh, Ansible's success was partly due to its fact that it used Python underneath. And when you were configuring a lot of Ansible stuff, it was all very Python-esque, whereas Chef and Puppet were both using Ruby right. for its domain-specific language. And Ruby is not widely used, if it might make sense for a certain group of developers. But if you're trying to bring on the mainstream, you know, Ruby is is not as easily approachable as Python was, and that's partly Ansible's success. Uh, and also some people noted that Ansible has a much lower learning curve, so it's easier to get on board. But it does have a very significant scaling problem. And as we know, in enterprise IT, 
a lower learning curve always wins because nobody, <laughs> most people don't actually scale, right? And, <laughs> and if you have a scaling problem, well, that's that's a problem that you have later. That's better to have a scaling problem later than to not take it on at all. So yeah, sucks to be working in enterprise IT where the cheap, nasty, easy thing always gets adopted, and then you're stuck with scaling problems five years down the line. That's that's it. But yeah, does anybody still use Puppet, Drew? I mean, I did a Twitter thing and a whole bunch of people went, nah, or we got it, but we'll phase it out by the end of the year. So it was kind of weird. I mean, I, I'm not really up on Puppet. I assume folks are still using it for their Linux and Windows configuration management. But as we see things move to the cloud and where, you know, sort of orchestration and playbooks start to take over, you see Terraform coming to the fore more. Uh, that seems to have eclipsed pretty much everything these days. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what Puppet's stake is. It's probably going to be one of those legacy things that if you need it, you have it and it's going to live there forever. Yeah. So it is, it is a shame. And I mean, with the move to the public cloud as well. So Puppet was used mostly for provisioning Linux from what I remember. Right. Cause it needs an agent, uh, which isn't mm. always great for your public cloud deployments. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the latest fashion doesn't really feel like Puppet or Perforce. Uh, Perforce used to be a leading software configuration management before Git came around, GitHub. Mm. Uh, Git as a, as a software configuration management and then later GitHub and then that replaced all of the old one and Perforce was the dominant commercial solution back in the day when CVS was still a thing and so Perforce sort of didn't manage to make the cut over to Git but today they build a whole bunch of platforms on top but still I haven't heard of Puppet or Perforce in the what three years maybe so at least yeah so you know good for Perforce and glad to hear somebody's taking over Puppet if you've got it you might be pleased but uh I'd expect a whole lot of Perforce salespeople to be standing up on your doorstep in the next year trying to convince you to buy Perforce tools, not so much about the puppet. And again, back to it being living now in private equity, that's a place where they're just going to sort of extract money from it as long as it has uh, a useful life. Yeah, I'd say in this case, yes, uh, because puppet doesn't seem to have a growth curve around right, ahead of it. Right, it's not a growth product anymore. It, it's just yeah, it doesn't, it's not in fashion. Yep. Ansible's in fashion, Terraform's in fashion. So HashiCorp, you know, has mm -hmm. got the the leadership there because of their focus on the public cloud. And so that's all the rave. Chef's kind of gone down. SaltStack's still popular. Of course, VMware bought SaltStack. So they're still out there pushing it around um, as a configuration tool. Although we don't hear much about VMware saying SaltStack is the best, you know, automate, or, you know, DevOps tooling. But hey, you know, we'll see what happens, I suppose. All right, moving on, Atlassian, they make uh, SaaS-based developer tools, including Jira, Confluence, and others. They're still recovering from an internal error that deleted sites for approximately 400 customers. And as of April 12th, Atlassian said it had restored just over half of affected sites. It hopes to have all customers back up by the end of the month. Ouch. <laughs> so, yeah, we're sort of 20 days into this outage. Uh, half the customers have been restored. Um, and Atlassian owns, of course, the most popular tools for agile teams. So Jira, Confluence, Opsgenie. Uh, and I mean, they're not great tools, but they are tools and, uh, it's a bit like Salesforce. Once everybody gets around or, you know, Microsoft office, once everybody gets into the same sort of tooling, then it becomes like a job description to say, ha have the same tools as everybody else. Of mm -hmm. course, that means everybody operates in the same way and that's got advantages and disadvantages, but it seemed, uh, the, the reports from Atlassian suggest that they ran a bad script. The script didn't just take down the site. It actually wiped the data for 400 customers. Yes. So 400 customers completely lost their Atlassian. Um, apparently, uh, some people are suggesting that instead of, you know, Atlassian putting all hands to fix the problem and, you know, get the pump, there was a company conference happening in Las Vegas, meaning that a core, a large number of, 
you know, absolutely core important employees actually traveled out from Australia to Las Vegas to attend the company conference and have a good time. Mm. And the people left behind weren't really able to fix it. And then for the first two weeks, you know, for the first 10 days or so, Atlassian just failed to communicate with customers other than to say, oh yeah, something's a problem, but we don't, we we're fixing it. We'll let you know. Customers who've been impacted, uh, even though Atlassian has said that they have been contacting customers directly, customers who have this problem are saying they're not being contacted directly. So there's, there's some pretty bad stuff. So what we're now looking at is that customers have been down for three weeks, 20 days, 21 days as at recording. And it's going to be another 20 days before all customers are back, if Atlassian can indeed do that. So pretty grim all around for a SaaS service, which is critical to a lot of organizations for software development um, you know, and team management. Yeah, so Atlassian, there is a blog post from Atlassian that kind of outlines what happened. It was a combination of very poor internal communications and that use of a <laughs> nuclear delete script uh, that had very poor, very bad ramifications for the company and customers yeah. in particular. Yeah, I think the I think the challenge here for me, Drew, is that you know, this is you know we talked a lot about conferences, but it is a problem for companies of a certain size when their best employees fly off to the conference in Las Vegas, and mm -hmm. um, the service is impacted. But instead of cancelling the conference and all hands to the pump or finding a way to work, they just seem to have just pushed on and gone like screw the customers. That's certainly the perception I've got. I could be wrong, um, but then again, I went and checked the share price for Atlassian. Do you think there's any impact? <laughs> There's some impact, but not as much as you might think. <laughs> None is no impact. Uh, the only reason that the share price is down is because there's been a general trend down on tech stocks over the last 30 days. And the drop in the last uh, seven days is because the financial report that they released indicated was slightly less than what analysts were hoping. So there was a reset of the price down. And so the, the share price fell accordingly. So yeah, Atlassian, 400 customers down for 20 plus days, another 20 days for the next 200. Share price, no impact. Think about that before you start uh, deciding to uh, flitch to a SaaS. They've got no incentive to make this better, which boggles my mind, boggles my mind. Yeah, I definitely one of the trade-offs to consider when thinking about SaaS. There are numerous, but the same trade-offs also apply to doing it in-house. So that's always the, it depends question. Mm -hmm. All right, a short break to tell you uh, about our sponsor, Nokia, and their Edge Network Controller. Edge Network Controller is a Kubernetes-based application that automates IP networks in small edge locations that are hosting 5G user plane functions, cloud RAN, and cloud-native apps for low latency and bandwidth-intensive industrial and manufacturing use cases. Using Edge Network Controller, you can operate switches and routers, and network operators can configure VLANs, IP subnets, manage equipment configurations, and expose analytics and telemetry for monitoring and assurance. Edge locations tend to be power and space constraints, so uh, edge network controllers designed to run inside Kubernetes so operators can automate the network with extremely lightweight application that runs on compute hardware that's already on site. And because it's built within Kubernetes, they can do so by leveraging the entire ecosystem and tooling to tie into DevOps pipelines. If you want to learn more, you can listen to the Tech Bytes conversation we did with Nokia uh, about edge network uh, controller. That's up from April 11th. Or you can go to mm. nokia.ly slash edge dash network controller. That's nokia.ly slash edge dash network dash controller. Yeah, so this the edge network controller is basically a software SDN solution for the small branch. So it's designed to run in containers on a Kubernetes type infrastructure, and it is anti-cloud. So what we just talked about with Atlassian, <laughs> you're not dependent on the cloud to configure the network in your factory or at the edge of your network. You know, if you're running 30 or 40 switches in a warehouse or, you know, whatever, and you need a controller, that's what this is. It's actually an SDN for that data center that you would probably build there. Yeah, for on the small edge location. Yes, on-prem. Mm. It's all on-prem. On-prem. 
All right, back to the news. Uh, the Sonic Network OS, originally developed by, by Microsoft around white box switches, is now officially part of the Linux Foundation. Yeah, this was something I almost didn't pick up, Drew. Uh, it was kind of a key, but um, Sonic is, of course, becoming a movement. I think we've said over the last two or three years that I think Sonic is going to be the dominant operating system for white boxes. Most of the others have faded away. Remember, there were so many of them for a long time. Um, most mm -hmm. of the other operating systems seem to be fading away, and we're hearing rumors of various vendors looking to get into Sonic. And I'm also hearing rumors that Sonic may well be the operating system for DPUs. We may actually see an initiative. So instead of, you know, NVIDIA, Intel, you know, uh, all of those companies who want to develop a, a, a DPU, it needs an operating system to run on it so you can load your apps and, you know, access your Linux thing. It might make sense to put a Sonic distribution on there just to have the same operating system on the DPU as you do in the switches in your network, switches and routers. And so moving it to the Linux Foundation, I think, is a signal that Microsoft wants to let it go. Maybe they're cutting back or maybe the people involved uh, inside of Microsoft who are the stewards or have been the stewards of Sonic have decided that now is the time for them to move on. And now Microsoft is effectively saying, well, I, I don't know which one of those it is, but I suspect the second. It's probably more likely the people involved are saying it's too much effort now time to give it away to the to the Linux Foundation and let them manage it. My assumption is that Microsoft, which obviously developed Sonic for its own strategic purposes uh, and then released it open source, of course, to attract a developer community and get more resources to work on it for free, now feels like it's established enough, we're using it in-house, we're going to support it ourselves, and let's see if we can build more interest around it. And it seems to have happened. We've seen third parties like Dell getting behind Sonic, uh, running Sonic as a, an option on, on their switches. And if, if it does get picked up for DPUs to do network offloads, then that's also great for Sonic. So yeah, I do mm. think um, we've seen the Linux Foundation just sort of be a warehouse for projects that were originally developed by vendors uh, who then want to sort of, you know, hand it over, build that developer community and also not have to deal with all the hassles of open source licensing and such. Yeah, it is super interesting in the sense that, you know, if you think about if you if you follow the line of DPUs and you have this you know, effectively the, the, what was a switch router used to be in the core of your network. And then when the packet comes in the EV and it goes into the EVPN and then it gets classified into a micro segment, it makes much more sense to actually do all that in the NIC on the server. If you can do that impactless and at reasonable price and PowerPoint. And the current suggestion is that the DPU will do it better than the, than the network switch and at a lower power consumption and at a cheaper price point. So you will have things like microservices, uh, service meshes running directly on the DPU. You'll have storage engines running on the DPU and, and all that traffic will then just go into the network and it will have been pre-classified. There's no concept of edge marking on the switch. And so those, you know, spine leaf networks in your system just become forwarding engines, IP. So remember how much of an innovation it was that the spine just become a layer three forwarding engine? Mm -hmm. Well, now the leaf just becomes a layer three forwarding engine and the work happens more at the edge. And there'll be some legacy, yes, okay. But that's the trend I'm seeing emerge. And I think if you can put Sonic on all of them, that makes it a lot easier to develop a software to find a you know, controller of some sort to sit across them. And that is ultimately where the value is. The value is not in you know, my switch does this many ports and does a, this density and this forwarding latency. That doesn't matter so much these days. Very few people are operating at that sort of scale, excluding the, the, the biggest customers, you know, the mega clouds. But the ability to start doing more in the DPU, that's what we're seeing out of VMware with Project Monterey, they call it, right. which is their DPU integration. And they're looking for, we, want, we have this set of functions that we want to run 
we want to run them on any DPU. So you make your DPU and we'll run our software and then people who have VMware will buy your DPU. So there's a, there is some stuff coming in that direction. Yeah. And as I mentioned, if Sonic does become sort of the de facto NOS for DPU networking and security use cases, that's, that's a win for Sonic mm. for sure. And potentially I mean, you for think the about community it. as well, because if you have a uniform NOS, then folks can write applications to that NOS instead of having to do a, a bigger stack. Exactly. It do, it would certainly be a problem for the legacy vendors, for the existing vendors who've got custom NOSes and there's super magic mystical powers in them. And you may lose some of those features, but you gain somewhere else. So the emphasis will be for them to come up with a way to make this work. And I think increasingly they're going for the software anyway. The hardware is less and less relevant over time for more and more of the networking vendors. You know, Cisco doesn't see you know, selling switches to customers as a growth market, they see that as that's where they come from, but their future is in the cloud and all that sort of stuff. But it is going to be interesting to see if we see really innovative, much better software-defined solutions. We should see more uh, emphasis on operations, uh, more emphasis on things like NSX doing firewalling and threat detection in the DPU. So, for example, today, NSX can take two CPU cores out of a server to run the NSX functions. I've heard of, you know, something like 20% of the processing power of the server being allocated to all of the stuff that NSX wants to do. Right. Um, and if you can just offload that onto a low cost, dedicated, customized NIC and leave all the CPUs available, then you increase the density and performance of your VMware server, you know, your server hardware. And so there is definitely a, a, an advantage there that seems to be on paper. And judging from the amount of interest we've seen from various companies like NVIDIA and Intel, into building out their DPU businesses seems to be the way it's going. Yep, I, th I think so. I, I do think we're going to see uh, every networking vendor is going to argue that their network operating system is is wonderful and special, but the real value is moving up into that SDN layer. Yeah, and the challenge here is going to be bringing the market with it. Like, you know, I think the days of Ansible and Python are rapidly fading away and that was fine. That got us from CLI to moving into the software-defined era. But I think much, much more, the next 10 years is going to be set up by, I'm using this software-defined controller to do my network operations. Then my deployment becomes buy another switch, click it in, and it gets automatically detected and is automatically provisioned and brought into the console. But most of the functions are in the DPU over time. Over time. Right. We, we've already seen Cisco go this way with ACI, VMware with NSX, uh, Arista, Cloud Vision, Juniper is going that way with Mist, uh, mm -hmm. Aruba. We talked about Net Controller. That's the beginning of their uh, effort into this space as well. Yeah. Doing it yep. in SDN and the overlay. It seems inevitable at this point. Slow, like, you know, you, as always, the future's here, but it's not evenly <laughs> distributed. <laughs> so, <laughs> but our goal, you know, part of what we like to do on the network break is to look at what's happening and then try and extrapolate what where it's going into the future. So try and give some ideas about what the potential is going to be and how it might impact your longer term. So, yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Apache, they've released additional patches and updates to fix security vulnerabilities in the Struts 2 framework. You may remember that Struts vulnerabilities were exploited in spectacular fashion against the credit reporting agency Equifax back in 2017. Uh, researchers have uncovered new ways to exploit Struts that weren't covered with the original updates, and so new updates and patches are now available. Yeah, Struts 2 is kind of one of those Java problems. So Struts is, is a Java engine. Java is, as always, a problem. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> It's not a much to say, but yes, go 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 get patching. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Uh, in other vulnerability news, uh, Cisco's announced patches for a bug in its wireless LAN controller that could allow an attacker to bypass authentication and log in as an administrator. The vulnerability has a 10 out of 10 severity rating. Uh, so Cisco, one of the leading purveyors of Java problems, uh, is having a problem with its authentication engine. Apparently, if you can get to the Cisco wireless LAN controller management interface, now it's true that your wireless LAN controller management interface should be restricted. It should not be in the general network. It should be on a management network, et cetera, et cetera. But equally, the login should not just allow anybody with a special set of credentials to just log in, I think. So... Cisco's a le this Cisco has this problem repeatedly. How many times have we talked about these types of things? Interface authentication bypass on Cisco products. It happens over and over and over. It does, yeah. Hardwired credentials, you know. Just <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a problem. Uh, in any case, uh, patches and workarounds are available, and Cisco has published a security advisor, uh, a security advisory with the details. Yeah, and this is also why you want to have these things on an out-of-band network, which is restricted. Only network operators should, you know, or certified individuals or restricted set of individuals should have access to the management interfaces on your network appliances, especially when it's to do with things like WLAN. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the episode. Stay tuned uh, for our Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba. It's a sponsored conversation. We're going to be talking about Wi-Fi 6E and why Aruba is seeing so much take-up of Wi-Fi 6E. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking with Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company, about the evolution of Wi Fi standards over the next couple of years. In particular, Wi Fi 6, that's the current standard, and there's recent extensions that led to Wi Fi 6E with a number of practical enhancements. Uh, our guest today is Chuck Lukashevsky. He is VP and wireless CTO at Aruba. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. So, first, start us off for folks who aren't entirely sure what the difference is between Wi Fi 6 and 6E because they sort of ran up against each other. What's going on with Wi Fi 6E? What's different? Uh, great question. So the short answer is that uh, it's the same technology. Uh, the difference is the, the frequency bands that are supported. So the easiest way to think about Wi-Fi 6E is that it's Wi-Fi 6 for the 6 gigahertz band. And that E stands for extended, as in extended spectrum. So it's the exact same uh, IEEE standard. Uh, it's it's just been uh, made, you know, it's been given access to 6 gigahertz. Now that 6 gigahertz has been the result of a lot of uh, politics because Spectrum allocation is something that governments handle and the IEEE and various Wi-Fi standards bodies have actually been working with governments around the world to get spectrum allocated. And it's different in the US than it is from just about everywhere else in the world. There's a lot of countries in the world yet to allocate 6 gigahertz. So it's not, it is a, it is an evolving space still, the 6E to some extent. Yes, that, that, that's correct. So the, you know, the, the work is not done, but we've made amazing progress mm. in, in really unprecedented time. Uh, if, you th if you consider the amount of spectrum that is being allocated, uh, or at least under consideration, as you say, by some, by mm. some governments, you know, 1.2 gigahertz of spectrum is, is the, you know, the largest allocation of mid-band spectrum that's ever been made. Mm. And mm. The, um, uh, you know, where we sit right now is about 50 countries have, have uh, you know, opened the band uh, formally. Hmm. Another, you know, about 40 are at some stage of a regulatory process, but that leaves us with another 100 to go, right? Yeah. And yeah. as you say, the, the the rule environment varies a bit from country to country. So just as a good example of that, uh, in the in the Americas, um, you know, we've had about 10 countries that have um, uh, uh, voted to open the entire 1200 megahertz of the band, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. in Europe, the European Union uh, and and a sort of affiliated uh, ECC countries um, have decided to just begin with the uh, the lower 500 megahertz of the band, 
Uh, although it's it is also the case that there's just uh, if you haven't heard there's 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 a brand new um, EC mandate to now begin the technical studies on the upper 700 megahertz. So okay. we've got many years of harmonization ahead of us. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a pathway to harmonization, which is really yes. useful, right? So the EU wasn't comfortable with allocating the whole 1.2 gigahertz or 1200 megahertz, if you like. Um, and they think they le- gave about 700 and you're now saying there's a, they're sort of moving towards allocating that as well. Yeah, well, I'm saying there are there are technical studies, which is mm-hmm. a precondition to so, uh, right, you know yeah. any sort of assignment. Um, and and folks that you know this starts to get in the you know, policy weeds a little bit, but uh, the other fo- thing that folks should you know that the track this should you know be aware of is there's a thing that happens called the World Radio Conference every three or four years. The next one is in 2023, and this is the uh, this 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 happens sort of under the United Nations auspices. It's a it's a treaty based meeting, and the outcome, the decisions at that conference are. Then uh, effectuated is in national law. So, um, one of the outcomes of the last WRC was that uh, different regions uh, took an action to actually study part of this band mm. for potential use by cellular. So there's there is another sort of a, a, a fight going on, if you will, uh, at that level um, it, between several different incumbents. We could do a whole podcast on this, but. Yeah, to make a long story short, you know, again, we've got we've got quite a lot of work to do, and it just takes time too, because getting international bodies to line up and getting many yes. governments to line up, and but I think that the takeaway that I got from what you said was that this would align over time. So there's there's Correct. even though the U.S. has led the way with allocating twelve hundred megahertz in the in the six gigahertz spectrum, which is a phenomenal amount of space, but also that spectrum is not really useful for much else. To be fair, for Wi-Fi, it's almost perfect. Um, and for, for consumer electronics and a range of stuff like that. I guess uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask is how quickly has the take-up been of Wi-Fi 6 and 6E in particular? Because quite often we see the new standards take a little while to get going. Are they? Is the take-up good? Yeah, the take-up has been great. Basically, the rule is every new generation of Wi-Fi, um, and in this case, you know, 6E would be newer than 6, and 6 mm. was newer than 5, and so on. Each new generation of Wi-Fi has sold faster than the one before it, and certain mm. at least that's that's Aruba's experience. And you know, I, I think if you look at the broad market research, uh, you'll see that as well. And and certainly that's been uh, you know our experience since we you know we we announced the the first product. I think from any enterprise vendor uh, in the middle of last year, early last summer. Yeah. So we've been shipping in volume since 2021. Right. Have you run into issues either because of COVID or supply chain in terms of Wi-Fi adoption with folks not even in the office? No, actually, it's it's it, well. It, so it's you. You asked sort of two questions there. So um, you asked an adoption question and a and a, and a constraint. And a question. supply chain. So, yes, yes. Yeah. So let me so let me take the adoption question first. So so um, with respect to people uh, deploying, the answer is no. And I, I think you know we've we've seen, if anything, we've seen companies. You know, maybe their investment strategies on the IT front have have adjusted, right? So they're they're putting more money into work from home types of environments. But uh, clearly, the office is coming back, and and many of our customers have used this time to, you know, do long, you know, postponed upgrades. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you think about uh, universities, for example, this has been a great time to actually go and do, you know, IT infrastructure refreshes that have been, you know, on the to do list for a long time, and there was just not the time to get to it. On the supply side, you know, I think that's probably a, a, a manufacturer by manufacturer question. You know, what I can tell you is, is you know, that's we're not hearing that from from the from the analysts that we we 
respect in the marketplace and specifically with respect to Aruba. And I, I would imagine that the, the, the larger enterprise companies, you know, they all have, you know, very experienced folks in their, in our you know, procurement and supply organizations. Hmm. You know, we, we signed contracts for parts a long time ago. Um, yeah, you know, the you lead to- time is long on this stuff. You supply, it's the same with iPhones, is, which is the story I often tell and it applies equally to IT infrastructure. That supply contract was signed two years ago quite often, you know. Correct. Yeah. So, so we're not, I mean, it's, we could sell more for sure. Uh, the demand is that great, but uh, yeah, but we're, we're shipping in volume. Um, and, and for us, it's, it's taking off, you know, as I said, faster than even the Wi-Fi six takeoff, which was a, a pretty impressive ramp. Okay. Now that's interesting. Cause there were significant differences between Wi-Fi five and Wi-Fi six that I could see a huge appetite for six. What do you think is driving six E? Is it just that additional spectrum? So, you know, that is one of the major drivers for sure, uh, at least from a 6E perspective, right? But for, for Wi-Fi 6, you know, we, we introduced our first product uh, over three years ago, and it's, you know, you, it, it had the same type of, of, of a ramp profile. You know, I think, you know, it, it, the, 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 the hero feature of, of Wi-Fi 6 was OFDMA, mm-hmm. uh, among others, and, and, and true support for 160 megahertz channels. We had 160s. Um, mm you know, kind of before in a, in a, uh, not really a deployable way. So, you know, we got, you know, to the extent that that was important to certain customers, that would be another driver for it. But, um, you know, it's, you know, fundamentally, I think it's about the multi-user technologies that are in Wi-Fi 6. Now the multi-user technologies in Wi-Fi 6 split multiple dimensions. What it means is the ability of the ASICs inside to actually handle multiple users better. So it's actually able to stream data and it's actually able to allocate spectrum intelligently or directionally towards where the users go. If the users are in a 360-degree space around the antenna, then it knows to allocate this group of spectrums to the one in the you know northeast and this group of spectrums to the ones in the southwest so that more spectrum is available. That That's a very loose description of, of how it works, right? Yeah, that's a, in the spatial domain, that's mm. that's right. So you're, you're talking about multi-user MIMO and... Mm. You know, what we got with Wi-Fi 6 is bi-directional multi-user MIMO, right? Mm. Uh, Wi-Fi 5 had a downlink only, but we also have time domain and frequency domain uh, multi-user here in the form of, of what's called uh, OFDMA or mm. you know, orthogonal frequency division multiplexing. And and that's this is the same technology that the, the LTE, you know, the 4G, 5G systems use to be able to address multiple different devices at the same time. And, and um, you know, so you may say, okay, what's the difference between multi-user MIMO and OFDMA? Uh, the answer uh, is, is, uh, is quite simple. So OFD, you think OFDMA for short packets, right? So things mm. like voice and control signaling, mm. um, because we're subdividing a channel into lots of little parts. And then multi-user MIMO is for big packets. So think, you know, uh, video downloads yeah. or, you know, big file downloads. Printing. <laughs> printing exactly people forget yeah. how valuable printing is i mean just because a lot of us don't use it but printing has actually been one of the killers of campus bandwidth for for decades so i, I guess this gets me into a question we've seen people talking about wi-fi 7 lately and i'm a mm-hmm. bit gun show on this because i've looked at the specs on wi-fi 7 and there's really not a whole lot of enhancements in there and it kind of looks like somebody's trying to stuff the stuff the stocking and push the future, you know, bring the future in here. Is that a fit? Would you agree with that? Or would you have a take on that? 
Yeah, I definitely have a take, and and uh, you know, I published a blog recently on this that um, you know, we might want to you know put a link to here for the podcast. Mm. Um, the title of the blog is my answer to your question, which is the um, you know the reports of Wi-Fi Seven's birth have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> uh, you know, Wi-Fi Seven is you know first of all, it's 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 still early in the standards process. IEEE has not even finalized everything that's going into it yet. <laughs> so yeah. to be to be talking about shipping it, uh, you know, or much less, you know, uh, holding off on buying something that is available today that's that has, you know, really powerful impact, you know, to wait for this thing that is around the corner, uh, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, not this time, right? There, there was a time, like, if you were doing certain things, waiting for Wi-Fi 5 was smart. And if you had have gotten there with Wi-Fi 6, but when I look at the specifications for Wi-Fi 7 today, it's two years until the standard is complete, if, if, and it's a very big if, if the standard gets completed on time, which in the IEEE is rare. And even if you do, nothing significantly changes, right? In theory, the frequency bands remain the same because there's no new spectrum being allocated to Wi-Fi. The security protocol remains the same. There is a higher channel bandwidth, but that's a pretty niche use case. I mean, who needs 10 gigabit Ethernet, like 320 megahertz channels? <laughs> um, that's niche because you, even if you're going to use those types of things, you still need to be within, what, five meters of a Wi-Fi AP to make that work? Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. So so I, I, I would just say, before we go to the features, mm. I would just say that I, I do think it's going to get delivered on time, mm. uh, even if it's, you know, even if IEEE isn't, hasn't ratified it yet, um, you know, that's never stopped you know, the consumer companies in the past from shipping an, an earlier draft, you know, once kind of the hardware is baked and they can, mm. you know, they can patch anything they need to in software. So I do think that we'll see consumer APs towards the end of next, next year. Mm. But, you know, to your point about, okay, is, you know, what's the, what's the benefit or what's the value the the soundbite I would give you just to sort of the meta point, and we can come back and repeat it later, mm. but essentially from an enterprise point of view, you can get 100% of the gain in Wi-Fi 7 right now with Wi-Fi 6E. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the, as you, to, your, to your point, the, the, the quote-unquote hero features of Wi-Fi 7 are, are not likely to be useful um, and, and may never be implemented if you think about 16 spatial streams, for example. That's, you're never going to see a 16 spatial stream access point in the enterprise for the simple reason that we, you know, there's, the power over Ethernet budget required to support that device, mm. it doesn't exist at the access layer, right? Mm. Um, so it's it's not something you know that 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 you're going to see. But six gigahertz, as we've talked about, is is here. There's niche use cases that it addresses, right? It's like saying I need ten gig to the desktop. Well, no, <sighs> most people are perfectly happy with one gig to the desktop. But there is a handful of users who certainly would want. 10 gig to the desktop. And so we need to support it, but we don't like, you don't want to wait for 10 gig to arrive to get that, you know, in the wide space. Is that, is that metaphor valid? Well, remember you can, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I mean, you can, you can get to almost five gigabits per second over the air today mm. with, if, if you do, if you do 160 megahertz channel in, in the six gigahertz band with a four by four client, four by four AP, which, you know, there are four by four clients, you can easily, you can show, uh, you know, three to four gigabits per second over the air. Now it's not 10. So if you need 10, yeah, we're not there yet. But, you know, that that is that is a massive amount of, of um, you know, simultaneous uh, throughput. So I, you know, I think, I think it's- You're not going to be running that on a battery either. So that's not going to work on a smartphone Correct. or a tablet. 
or even a laptop for very long because you're going to be pushing so much RF out that it's going to be a significant drain on like six, eight, eight channels of MIMO bidirectionally transferring data. Sounds great until you realize it's probably draining your battery at a substantial rate. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a fair is, point. And, and of course, if you're doing it on the desktop, well then, you know, it would potentially be more effective to just, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, the, the other thing I would point out just if we, again, not to get too far in the technical weeds, so it's just kind of up level the conversation. You know, we, we have reached, it's interesting you mentioned 10 gigabits, right? Because, you know, we, we've, we've seen this movie before, you know, about 20 years ago when, you know, 10 gigabit Ethernet was ratified. And, you know, it, the enterprise collectively decided they didn't need it, right, from an access layer perspective. And I think we are very much at that same place now with, with Wi-Fi, which, of course, is an access layer technology. It is more than fast enough. And the things that my customers ask me about when I meet with them, I mean, we, 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 the, the speeds and feeds, if you will, have not been a serious topic of competitive conversation for at least three years or so, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly in the Wi-Fi 6 timeframe. Um, and, you know, it's all about, you know, the, the quality of our cloud system, the types of value-added services we're delivering, um, you know, machine learning. Clear pass, you know, network access control, micro-segmentation, how do I get my printers on the network but isolate them from my IoT? Those are the big issues now, not so much the... The actual exactly. appliances and, in the ceiling. And it's it's other radios, ironically, right? So we we, you know, the original BLE, and we were the first vendor to put Bluetooth in an access point back in 2013. That was mm. Bluetooth 4, right? So now we have Bluetooth 5, right? There's Zigbee. We're plugging an amazing range of of third-party devices into the USB ports mm. um, on all of our APs. We're doing everything from gunshot detection to air quality monitoring to actually plugging in oh, oh, oh. Other I know what kinds I wanted of to radios ask you and interrupt yeah, you because I wanted to quickly talk to you about open locate you announced open locate at Aruba atmosphere last week we did and that yep. is this GPS location of the access point that is super exciting yep. now that's going to be a part of all the existing access points that are out there now for Aruba uh it, it's in all the the GNS G, GPS receiver is in all the 6e aps so that's our mm. ap 600 family mm. uh both the platforms we've announced as well as uh platforms that uh, are on the way mm. um but gps alone doesn't solve that problem so what we announced last week is actually the we've integrated two technologies so gps on the one hand and then um, there's a second technology called wi-fi certified location which some of your listeners may know as as uh, fine timing measurement FTM or oh. 802.11 MC was the standard for it, and this is a super precise ranging technology that doesn't use signal strength, and you can get you can get down to a, a one to two meters of range um, because it's based on time of flight. So we've combined those two technologies together to basically be able to locate almost at, you know any AP in a building, and then in turn clients that support FTM will be able to talk to our APs to help them locate themselves. So I not only can I locate the APs, but potentially even the clients, handsets and so forth that support this mechanism Correct. can be geolocated. So we're heading into the space where the use case that I was always um, given years and years ago was safety. So if a person has a, a device on them and they need to know exactly where they were, maybe they're remote working alone, and for health and safety reasons, you want to know exactly where they are. So if they hit the emergency button, you can go right to them. And Correct. that includes not just, you know, where they are on a two-dimensional plane, but up or down. 
because you might be climbing a, a, a tower or, you know, in a factory on the fifth level of a, of a particular plant and you need to know where you are up as well as horizontally. And, and this is heading in that direction. Yes, it, yes, it very much is. And, and you know, you can, in, sort of in that spirit, you can also regard this as, you know, our, our long-term objective is to enable Wi-Fi calling to be on by default on any kind of mobile device, mm. right? And, and of course, the reason it's not, and, you know, is that you have to put in your 911 address in case you need to make that call. And, you know, so it's going to, but it's going to take time to, you know, this capability has got to be very pervasive in the market. And, and, and it, that means it also can't just be Aruba that ultimately delivers it. It's yeah. got to be something that regulators can, can, can count on. So there could be in a situation where the AP signals to your handset, I know exactly where I am. Therefore you can enable your emergency calling 111 or 911, depending on the country that were 000, whatever country you're in. And you would then be able to call have emergency calling inside of a building, which is kind of cool. Yeah, cor- correct. But we also see a lot of other use cases. I mean, you, if you if you think about, it, I mean, the, so many of us with you know, carry smartphones, right? We we use location almost every day, multiple times that we don't even think about it anymore. And mm. so I, I don't. I'm not talking about you know Apple Maps or Google Maps. I mean, think about you know when I when I leave the house, right? My thermostats know that I'm not here anymore. Right. And, and so they go, you know, they, they turn off the, the air conditioning and, you know, we use things like Uber and, and what have you. So there's location in, you know, app, mobile app developers have, have come to, um, you know, just incorporate location into their workflows, right. Because it's dependable and imagine a world where that, that is true indoors as well. In fact, there's no distinction anymore between Mm. whether you're indoors or outdoors, it just works. And so you could, you could book your Uber from the gate, right? When you arrive at an airport, you don't even have to, you know, get all Connect the way to, to the, the 4G, 5G network, you straight up out of Wi-Fi. Yeah, exactly. So, and then, you know, from a security perspective, we have customers that have long been interested in incorporating location as, as one of the factors in a multi-factor authentication, mm-hmm. uh, you know, regime. And, you know, the, if, if you, if you had location in a very accurate way, you could start to do that. So the sky is really the limit um, mm. that you know we're, we're that we we think we can open up with this. Once it's there, it's it's a feature that we can have, and that and that's available now. You don't need to wait two years, four four years for that to come out. That's something that's in the Aruba product now, and hopefully other vendors will start to work with you to turn this into a universal standard across the industry. Yeah. So so yeah. And just to clarify, so the the, the GPS hardware we've been shipping since last year in all the six E platforms. So that's Mm. Um, and, and that was really why we, we made the announcement last week at Atmosphere is that we want customers to be aware of that. So as they're considering their 6E, you know, whether or not to, to upgrade to 6E and, and, you know, making a selection between vendors, we want them to be aware that that's in there. Um, we haven't yet announced the actual software availability for this, but, uh, you know, I can tell you that it's, it, it's, it's not, it, it's definitely not too far away. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the intention is to have it. Uh, you know, the software will catch up with the hardware here in a few quarters. Well, Chuck, we're out of time, but thank you. You've given us a lot to think about. A lot, uh, and I think we may have to have you back to talk more about location capabilities at another time so we can go into uh, even more detail. But uh, sure. thank you, Chuck, for being with us. Thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. If you want to find out more about their 60 products, just go to arubanetworks.com. Uh, and thank you for listening. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Listen to us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.